I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And my guest today is Linda Kohanov. Chiron came along, and he was actually the ultimate Renaissance man, except that he happened to have four legs. But um, he was, you know, just an example of, I think, mythologically and archetypally, what happens when you become a centaur, when you really put your mind back onto your body and really let those two interact with each other. In our culture, we're taught to rein in our own bodies and our emotions and our instincts and intuition in much the same way that we dominate and punish horses. And so in some sense, the body is the horse that your mind rides around on. But if you really understand the body, what you understand is the body is an intelligent being in similar to a horse. And that when a rider, when the mind really learns how to form a partnership with the horse and activate the horse's intelligence rather than just using it as a machine, that, my goodness, your, your sense of empowerment and your awareness of the world expands exponentially. Linda Kohanov is the founder of Epona Equestrian Services, a collective of riding instructors and counselors exploring the healing potential of the horse-human bond. She lives near Tucson, Arizona. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. And you have written a book called The Tao of Equus. So you've been a horse person a long time. Well, not as long as you would imagine for someone who's written a book and who makes a living now being with horses. Actually, I didn't own my first horse until I was well into my 30s. Oh, really? Wow. So tell us about The Tao of Equus. The Tao of Equus basically translates as the way of the horse, referring also to the ancient philosophical tradition of Taoism, which is an amazing philosophy of balance. And I feel like horses have the ability to do that and to really attune people to finding that balance in themselves. Horses are amazingly intelligent beings, but they tend to relate to the world more from a feminine or yin perspective than a yang perspective or masculine perspective. Because they are uh, prey. They're not predators. That's right. And they have a whole psychology that's about not being predatory. And it causes them to relate to the world in a way that I really think could help balance the human race. Mm -hmm. And we've grown up in a culture that has emphasized all kinds of predatory, aggressive ways of being in the world. And we've lost sight of what I call in the book at times the wisdom of the prey. And horses are prey animals, but they're not weak, and they're not cowards. And yet they have this amazing ability to be powerful when necessary, but it's not their inclination to be naturally aggressive. Mm -hmm. And you do therapy with horses. Yes, I do. But I also really, in the last few years, have moved myself away from so much of the therapeutic aspect and really gotten more into helping people who are already fairly successful in life learn how to exercise intuition and leadership and um, expand their sensory awareness and expand their extrasensory awareness through working with horses. So I guess I'm really more of a person who's interested in helping successful people become even more successful in life. Well, and horses are are really nowhere else but here, you know. And um, one of the things that was really interesting to me um, was about um, when you talked about the lost art of doing nothing <laughs> and how, uh, how is this useful for someone who wants to be more successful? Well, when I was looking for the constructive aspects of doing nothing, It actually came to me because I was in a situation where a horse I was really attached to, her name is Rasa, Mm -hmm. and actually in the book her her whole name is Tabula Rasa, which essentially means clean slate. But um, she had an injury, and it was the kind of injury that kept me from riding her and kept me from doing a lot of the conventional things you would do with training horses even on the ground. And so if I wanted to spend time with her while she was convalescing, I had to basically spend a lot of time hanging out with her, doing nothing. And what I found was when I did nothing with her, it wasn't like nothing happened. 
<laughs> you can sort of fathom that paradox. No, no, I know. It was it was more like when I had to stop this perpetual striving mentality and this perpetual idea of training another being and and getting ready for some kind of athletic ride through the desert. When I shut all that down, a whole new world of sensory and extrasensory experience opened up to me. And you were just present with her. Yes, yes. And um and so how was that when you first just hung out with her? Um, did you have some greater insights as a result of that? or Absolutely. It was a turning point in my entire life because I had to spend time out in the pasture doing nothing with her after... I was working as an apprentice trainer at the time, too, at an Arabian breeding farm. And when I would do nothing with my mare, it was at the end of the day after all the humans went home, and I was in a pasture of horses with my mare. And what I noticed was... After all the people left for the day and I was wandering around acting more or less like another horse, the horses acted completely different. It's kind of like if you could have a, a camera of your children when you left the house and you left them home alone just to see what they do. Horses that seemed to be pretty shut down and pretty compliant had this whole life in the herd that nobody had ever witnessed before because every time the humans walked into the herd, they were sort of stirring things up. And so I began to see that, for instance, this concept we have of horses having a strict pecking order is not actually the way things are. Oh, really? No. It's, it's quite amazing. Their, their way of being in the herd is actually what I would call more like consensual leadership. And consensual in terms of the original meaning of that word, which, which means to sense together. And so what you'll find is, according to who's ever calmest in a certain situation or who's ever has the greatest interest in something happening, um, they tend to become the leader. And so they, they sort of change leadership roles. And quite often, the horse who really is the leader in terms of who the other horses look to in an emergency situation appears to the humans to be hanging out, and he, that horse will often eat second or third because the horse doesn't really care to waste time and energy to get into a fight with a horse yeah. to, you know, play around at the um, manger and, and try to be the first one to eat. Alpha-style leaders appear to be leaders to humans in the horse world, but really quite often those really flamboyant alpha-style horses are almost useless during an emergency situation to the rest of the herd. And so it's often an older, calmer, wiser horse who knows how to save energy for a true emergency that the other horses, horses look to to see, is this really a problem? Do we need to get upset about this and waste our energy? Um, or also, this is the horse that's most collected and most focused and clear during an emergency and the one who's going to get them out of trouble the easiest. But to a lot of humans, that horse does not really appear to be the leader. You have to hang out and be a part of the herd in order to see that that's actually the God, case. that must have been just such an eye-opening experience and a heart-opening experience. It really was. The other thing is that um, what I noticed, too, is that horses literally use emotion as a language. Well, you do talk in your book, and I wanted to ask you about this, is a, what you call a socio-sensual awareness. Yes, and that's actually a term from a, an anthropologist named E. Richard Sorensen. He came up with that term. And... It, it, it's a marvelous way to describe what horses have to teach humans, and that expanded state of awareness is socio-sensual, social. It's a kind of sensual awareness that actually moves through the whole group and very quickly. And so it was actually an episode of doing nothing with my herd that completely opened this up to me, where it was, it was a day, it was beautiful, it was sunny, it was in the, you know, mid-80s, and it was a perfect October afternoon, and I was hanging out with, in the field with my horse, Rasa, and all the other horses, and it was like, by hanging out with her, she was kind of tuning me to the equine frequency. My breathing would naturally slow down and be more like hers. I was in her presence. I was, we were sort of engaging in a kind of mutual grooming that horses do where I would scratch her withers and she would turn around and scratch the middle of my back. It's a really amazing experience. And horses have a tendency to not focus straight ahead. They have a tendency to expand their vision peripherally. Well, as, as prey animals, they have, what, a huge, what, 340 degrees of yes. vision? Is that right? Yeah. 
when they hold their head in a certain position, they can see 340 degrees of 360 degrees around them. And so there, it cu- creates a psychological wide view as well. Yeah. And they sense and see really with their whole body and much farther out. I actually was convinced that there is such thing as an um, as a, an elect- electromagnetic field around the body by being with horses because they actually use this field to communicate with each other. And I was able to map it by working with horses, but that's that's a whole other story. But anyways, on this day, just to give you an example that's really graphic of what this is like, um, I was standing out with Rasa. We were engaging in mutual grooming. We are breathing together. I was expanding into this sort of sociocentral wide view experience. And all of a sudden, I had another horse at that time that I actually um, bought for my husband, Steve. His name is Noche. And he oh, was right. an amazing um, Mustang ex-cow horse. And he was grazing quite quite a distance from us. And um, all of a sudden, and I'm going to explain this. It's going to take me about a minute to explain this, but it happened in a split second. And what happened was Noche saw something that caused him to move into a state of alarm. And just as he was lifting his head up, before he could even lift his head up and turn and run, I felt a shock wave of fear come from a significant distance and I literally felt it hit my body at, at the gut level and cause tension to um, be engaged in my gut. Like it, it really tensed up. And then I could feel this information going up my spine and into my head. So it was like the emotion traveled across this incredible distance like a sound. Like we don't see sound waves, but there's definitely evidence that they exist. And when they hit your body, they create vibrations that are then translated into your mind um, to create meaning. And so the same thing with emotion, except it hit at a gut level. And um, so I realized that I had the hair on the back of my neck standing up, and I was poised to turn to run before I could even see what happened, before Noche could even turn to run. And then, of course, the entire herd it happened to the herd at once. And so they all lifted up and turned and ran, and then I'm much slower than them, so they all ran past me. And when I looked to see what it was, and thank God it wasn't a mountain lion because I would have been the one eaten because I was by far the slowest (laughs) of the herd that day. Um, When I turned and looked at what was going on, it was a mountain biker. And a mountain biker, I realized from a horse's perspective, would be really quite frightening because here's this guy wearing this fluorescent blue shirt and these fluorescent socks with skulls on them. And he had mirrored sunglasses on. And he had a helmet on that was like the head of the creature from Alien. And he's not just, he's moving fast, but he's not moving like a regular creature. He's slithering along like a snake. And But he's big. And he's, and he's big. Fast. And he's fast. Yeah. And I thought, wow, from a horse's perspective, that would be really quite frightening. And it, and it amused me. And so I was standing there looking at this mountain biker, and I, I was, it was starting to make me laugh. And I was getting ready to turn around to tell the horses that it was cool. That it was cool. But they were already standing behind me like, oh, yeah, she thinks it's funny. So not only was the fear contagious and hit my body, <laughs> but my amusement and my relaxation upon seeing what it was actually was transmitted to the horses. And I didn't have to say, oh, it's okay. They were already there figuring out it was okay by my it. response. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't just watching the body language because I literally felt the shockwave of fear hit my body and cause me to go into flight or fight mode in coordination with all the other horses. It's kind of like when you see a, a flock of birds flying together. You oh, know how they make yes. a sudden change oh. and they all fly in another direction? Well, they don't shout directions to each other because, and they don't turn and then fly into each other and fall to the ground. There is a coordinating force where consciousness is expanded in the space between beings. And that day I really had that experience of what it is in a way that was more conscious Consciousness than ever before. expands in the space between beings. Absolutely. I, yes, I absolutely believe that. We're going to have to take a short break, and we'll be right back. And how can people get a hold of you, Linda? Um, they can log on to our website, and, and which is www.daoofequus.com. That's T-A-O-O-F-E-Q-U-U-S.com. Two U's. Yes, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today. On attunement, and I'm talking with my be- my guest. I'm talking with my guest, Linda Kohanov, 
and she has written a new book called The Tao of Equus, and we're going to take a short break, and we're going to be right back. So stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and my guest today is Linda Kohanov, and Linda has written a book called The Tao of Equus. And Linda, before the break, we were talking about... um, the expansion of consciousness into space in a way that birds do. But you, ex- you experience this, uh, when, excuse me, the way that birds do when they all are flying together. But you experience this in a herd of horses. And um, uh, it occurs to me you really must have come to a place where they trusted you deeply enough. Uh, but I bet they were able to sense when you were uh, open enough to really attend to that level of communication with them. Is that right? Absolutely. And that's something that over the years I've been able to teach to other humans is, and use for my own benefit is how, how do you get to a place where you truly are allowed to be a part of a horse herd and can be safe around them and to help them feel safe enough to be themselves. And, on some, and that and they acknowledge you as an individual, as do you, Acknowledge them as sentient, thinking, sensitive, intelligent, um, in ways, I'll bet, and from your book, uh, you get an awareness of horse uh, intelligence, and I want to talk about the horse ancestors in a moment, um, that I imagine has really shown you some different ways of, of attending as a human. It's changed my life on all levels. And it's helped me to understand things about people that they can't speak about. There's a, just a way of gathering a large amount of information around with horses that you're actually making conscious because they're big and it would be nice to be conscious if they're getting ready to turn and run because it would be nice, quite simply, not to have them run over you and not, you know, trample you to the ground. So at first it starts out more as a survival thing, but then it turns into a real ability to thrive at a level that is hard to imagine. When you just use your mind and you just use verbal communication, even psychologists have determined that in human situations, only 10% of communication between humans is verbal. And so that's 90% of the input we're receiving if we're only paying attention to words that we're not getting a hold of. Can you imagine if when you went to research something or have a business proposal or or decide to do something in the world and you said, I'm only going to give you 10% of the information available in my proposal here and let you make a decision based on that. But that's what we're doing every day when we ignore nonverbal communication. But I tell you, I bet many, many of the, C- the uh, uh, corporate chief officers have this kind of sensibility, but no one talks about it. They talk about it as a special gift or a gut feeling or whatever it is that they say, that extra edge that somebody has. But what happens is people don't know how to teach it to others. And what I found is when you're with horses, you can actually learn how to exercise that other 90%. And you can actually create situations where people learn how to exercise and become more conscious of nonverbal communication. And that includes emotions, it includes energetic communication, and it includes some of this other kinds of non-local consciousness that are going on as well. Right. And you, uh, you also refer to um, Rupert Sheldrake and the morphogenetic fields. Uh, and he had written a book called Pets Who Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, which I've read and enjoyed very much, and I, I, I really want to see if uh, we can get Rupert Sheldrake on this program. But um, this is very much what you're sensing, is it not? Yes, or is it something definitely. more even? Is it a field of, of, uh, that's unique to the equine community? Well, one of Sheldrake's aspects of his theories is that each species creates its own morphogenetic field, and it's a collective field of the memories of all horses who ever lived, and the blueprint of the species as it continues to evolve. It's all available through this morphogenetic field, and so there's a, a swallow field and a beach field and a human field, and sometimes these he- fields be- become highly influential with each other through interspecies associations, and if you think about it, the horse has literally taken our species around the world and has really been a huge part of our ability to evolve to the level we're at. And so the morphogenetic fields of humans and horses are actually intimately interconnected, I've observed, even though modern situations 
tend to keep us away from horses, we have 6,000 years of a collective memory that was intimately involved with horses. And so there are ways to reconnect with that wisdom and resurrect it in modern times. Well, and that brings me then to my next question about, tell us about the horse ancestors and, and how in your book you say they have invited you to uh, communicate to the rest of us humans about, about what's important for humans to know from the horse ancestors. This is one of the most controversial things that I've written in the book, and it took me a lot of nerve to write about this. But when I first experienced it, I also thought I was going a little crazy. And that's how I discovered the theories of Rupert Sheldrake and, and some of the other theories by people like Larry Dossie, who talk about non-local mind, mind being non-local, and that consciousness and memory exist outside the body and the brain. And the brain acts more like as a receiver for non-local mind, much like a cell phone. You know, their cell phones are flying, signals are flying all over the place, but you can actually pick up your own cell phone and tune in to a particular frequency. And so by working with horses, I was able to tune into that horse frequency of information and engage with it. And um, I just started calling it the horse ancestors because when I first started to engage with it, it, it would come to me almost like... Um, like the initial engagement with it would often appear to me as many interlocking horse heads, like an Escher-like painting of a lot of interlocking horse heads, or like a river of horses of all colors and all breeds all through time just moving through a huge canyon would often be the way it was metaphorically suggested. And, um, and I realized that if I would engage with this field of information that I could actually um, get training hints on how to work with unruly horses that turned out to be not so logical, not logically what you think you could do with a horse to, to achieve something. But when I would go out and try it, it would work every time. So it was really People are quite saying, amazing. how did you know to do that? Boy, it's a, <laughs> I mean, that's part of the story of, of that's, I wrote The Tao of Equus Four was to methodically tell somebody how this happened and how I started to get information from it. Well, and, you, and I have to say that this is one of these books that I just couldn't put down. Uh, and I couldn't skim it. I, I, the first time I talked to you on the phone, I said, you know, Linda, I, can't, I cannot skim this book. It's, it's too good. It, you know, not to say that some of the other books that I read by authors that I interview are not good, but um, you go into some real scientific grounded depth. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if you, view, you could use this as a master's thesis or a Ph.D. dissertation. Um, uh, because you have gone and you've done the research. You've, you've, uh, have you talked to Larry Dossie about this? No, I haven't talked to him personally. Okay. I did get to meet Rupert Sheldrake finally last oh, year. Oh, really? That was what fun. a real treat, mm-hmm. yes. I just did a lot of research as I was writing. What, this whole thing started out as really an, an article that I was going to write for the Tucson Weekly on what humans get out of their relationship with horses. Because there are a lot of people who have horses. In fact, horses... The horse industry in the United States, its influence on the gross national product is higher than that of the film industry. It's higher than that of the tobacco industry. There are 6.9 million horses in this country. I have no idea. Yes, and half of those horses aren't being used in racing or ranching or showing. So there's well over 3 million horses in this country that people are spending a lot of time and money on, and there is no official competitive or practical goal involved. So what are people getting out of this relationship? And this started out as an article to answer that question, and it ended up being a book that's rather long. And this was my first book. (laughs) Um, It first came out in 2001, and we're finally releasing it in paperback. So it's great because it's going to reach a whole new audience. And um, since then, I've written another book called Riding Between the Worlds, and I have a new book coming out on New World Library in the fall. Um, and it's actually a deck of horse wisdom cards with a guidebook that can be read ju- just as a book, a collection of mini essays on 40 different lessons that horses can teach people. Because what I found was that a lot of the wisdom that horses have to teach people can actually be conveyed in human settings. Um, and so it's fun when I go to do lectures or I go to do workshops that are more indoors when the horses aren't present, that I can actually use these horse wisdom cards and have horse images and have horse wisdom to be able to be conveyed in that way. So it's a fun project. So what does Rasa think about these cards? Um, I think she's <laughs> pleased with, with any 
any attempts to disseminate this information to the yeah. human race, which is a bit out of balance in its predatory or in organization. Yeah, and, and you also talk about um, pre-conquest and post-conquest awareness. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, that actually... Because that um, seemed to be pretty, uh, pretty important. That was really quite an amazing theory that, again, um, was... This terminology came from E. Richard Sorensen. He's an anthropologist, and he was the one who was coming up with the term sociocentral awareness as well. And what he noticed was that there were two types of consciousness that human beings have generally. And pre-conquest consciousness is the kind of consciousness that tribal cultures who haven't been touched by our more advanced quote-unquote civilizations have. And they are really intimately connected with each other. They engage in a level of sociocentral awareness. They are like horses or birds where when one member of a community feels something, the entire community can very instantly feel it and respond to it and act in coordination with it. There's a sense of that feeling of the space in between um, that we were talking about earlier as being the place where relationship really starts, the consciousness in the space between us as being significant. And that's all part of tribal culture mentality. He calls that pre-conquest consciousness. And then what he found was that post-conquest consciousness, which is ruled by logic and practicality and is the kind of thing that can make skyscrapers and put us in planes that fly around the world easily, which is very useful, that post-conquest consciousness has a predatory quality to it, that the logical mind itself is highly competitive and that when post-conquest consciousness meets pre-conquest feeling-oriented perspective in tribal cultures, that the post-conquest consciousness will automatically overshadow and attack that pre-conquest consciousness. And he actually uses an example of a tribe in New Guinea um, after World War II, and some people who really had great intentions met up with this tribe, and within a week, just their influence of this post-conquest logic-oriented consciousness completely um, confused this tribe and changed their entire way of thinking. They didn't even have memories anymore that they could access. And they were suddenly suffering from deep sources of alienation that we would consider normal in, in our culture, but they were able to change this culture to this deep sense of alienation from themselves and their own feelings and their own history within a week of just coming into con contact with our post-conquest consciousness. And there's a marvelous writer named Christian De Quincey. He's a philo philosopher. And he's taken E. Richard Sorensen's theories. He wrote a, an amazing book called Radical Knowing that I, I really love. And he's in the Bay Area, I think. It would be fun to have him on the show. Yeah. And anyways, Christian De Quincey was saying that if we can get to a place where we can combine the pre-conquest and the post-conquest perspective, and that we can bring these together through a higher mystical knowing that includes and integrates both of these, that this is where the human race has the potential to evolve beyond its current destructive orientation. So in a few words or, or less, <laughs> that's, that's one of the theories that I found useful in the book, because actually what I found is that horses can exercise and reawaken this pre-conquest sociocentral awareness in humans. Because that's and it can how help. they live. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Linda Kohanov, who has written a book called The Tao of Equus. And how can people contact you, Linda? You can log on to our website, which is www.daoofequus.com. And see all the programs and offerings you have there. Yes. Great. All right, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and my guest is Linda Kohanov. And Linda has written a book called The Tao of Equus. Um, before the break, we were talking about pre-conquest consciousness and post-conquest consciousness, and about how horses can bring us as humans back into more of a socio-sensual, herd-oriented pre-conquest consciousness. And you said you want to begin to work with people to become more successful. And you said you can train people how to get into this different kind of consciousness. Can you tell us more about that, please? Yes. I think that 
one of the basic principles is to realize that sociocentral awareness, that consciousness that grows in the space between us in relationship, um, we think of this as we don't really think about it very often, actually. We have a sort of rugged individual idea of empowerment. And actually, what I love about horses is that they're empowered animals. And like I said, they may not be predatory. They may be preyed upon in nature, but it doesn't make them weak. They can kill a mountain lion if they want to. My own horses chase coyotes around for fun. So there's a sense when you're with horses of being non-predatory and yet an immensely um, aware of the world. Um, and that includes sensory awareness as well as extrasensory extra awareness. For them, it doesn't seem to, it seems to all be equal to them. Well, and, it's primarily a, a spectrum of, of attending. Yes, yes. And they have this ability to expand and widen their consciousness because psychologically they're set up even physically to see, as we were saying, 340 of 360 degrees around them. Mm-hmm. And they see and feel with their whole bodies. Um, and they can move together really quickly and sync, and it's quite amazing. So when you're with horses, you, you learn all of that. But there's a, there's a thing that people say about herd mentality that we don't really want to get into herd mentality in well, the sense that... Well, as if it's some, a pejorative it, term. Yeah, it's a pejorative term. It usually has a, a connotation of a huge herd that is less intelligent because they're all together. And we can see that this happens with people, too, in groups. But what I've noticed with horses is that the herd itself is more of a sentient herd. The herd has a sentience with horses. It's a group consciousness. It's a group consciousness that's actually greater than the sum of its parts. And yet each individual is respected for the role that they play in the herd. And there's a lot of exchanging of leadership roles in a herd. Well, you were saying that earlier, that uh, the the wise person, the wise... Well, the wise, here I'm finding myself saying the wise horse person uh, in, in the herd will um, be the one who is not the alpha, you know, uh, trying to nose into the food the, the most quickly. Right. And, and they're, they're, the, the, the alpha is not trusted quite as much to fulfill the uh, capability of wisdom in the herd. Is that right? Yes, there are definitely some alphas that are wiser and older. Right. But... What I found was that sort of flamboyant alpha style of leadership that you'll see young stallions engage in. What I realized, that kind of dominance mentality and over-the-top dominance, where you always have to be the center of attention and you always have to get to eat first and all this sort of thing, it's actually an adolescent form of authority. So what I realized is, oh my God, dominance is an adolescent form of authority and it's not so richly nuanced. And that by watching the herd and watching really how leaders of a herd get seasoned over time and real herd leaders that other horses look to are not the obvious alphas. You can think a horse is in charge because he's flamboyant and eating first, but what you're looking at is adolescent behavior. And hopefully a horse grows out of that and becomes more seasoned and wise. And wouldn't it be nice if the human race could also recognize that that's what we need to do to move on? And I think we are. So how do we bring... The utility of this sociosensual awareness uh, into our everyday life, and and certainly it's it's becoming first of all aware that we're capable of it, but how do we work with that? The the steps that we actually teach people when they come to work with the horses are first of all to do some activities where you open up your bodily your bodily feelings and your emotions and begin to use those as information. Most of the time we're taught to suppress socially unacceptable or quote-unquote unevolved emotions. If you're dealing in spiritual communities, quite often they'll talk about emotions as being unevolved or certain emotions being more evolved than others. But really, to horses, they have a different view of it. All emotion is simply information. It's just as important for them to know when another herd member is afraid as opposed to playful That's or angry. That's incredibly freeing. As a, yeah, it's an amazing thing. And, you know, when I was, um, when I mean, I was a music critic for many years, mm-hmm. what I found was that in our culture, we have a whole lot of people who, who are taught to suppress emotion, right? And then we pay a few of them to express emotion, musicians and artists. But artists and musicians can lead deeply dysfunctional lives. I knew that very intimately working in the music field. And so I thought, well, expression's not obviously working, and suppression, that doesn't work either. 
Because you just suppress and you suppress and you suppress, oh, and then you blow up the at Puritan, points. The Puritan constraints, right? You know, the, yeah. just uh, lead to so much uh, devaluing of natural uh, human expression. Yes, but just expressing it's not taking you down the path to enlightenment either. Obviously, right? You know, we actually pay musicians to lead highly dysfunctional lives, really. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way. So, um, so when I was with horses, I thought finally I began to see that they have the ultimate alternative to those two. And what they do is they feel emotion, they get the message behind it, they change something in response, and then they go back to grazing, back to enjoying their lives. So it's not enough to just express it. You have to actually get the message behind it and make some alteration in your behavior or just the situation in the environment. Well, like any then, communication, that there's yeah. a there's a uh, a transaction that's going on. Absolutely. And there's closure, and there's an opening, and processing, and then uh, going back to doing what you're doing with right. perhaps a, di- a shifted awareness, I suppose. Yeah. So, but you you say you teach this to humans. Yes, and humans can actually learn that <laughs> in a relatively short period of time and it's amazing what a revelation that is when you learn I mean and what I found over time was that different emotions have very specific um, messages that once you know them like for instance anger most generally is a signal that someone's overstepped a boundary with you and they're trying to push you around usually for their own personal satisfaction without taking your needs into con- into concern and you can suppress anger all you want to, but your body still, when it's being pushed around and violated over and over, and can be in very subtle ways, yep. you will eventually trip off into rage, and you're likely to rage at the wrong person. So you need to learn, you need to sense when somebody's stepping over a boundary with you and set a boundary with that person before you trip off into rage and rage at your in child at home yep, yep. rather than your boss at work, let's say. So the, the proper use of anger actually takes integrity and courage to engage. But when you learn how to set boundaries with a horse, a thousand-pound animal, mm-hmm. if you can set boundaries with a thousand-pound animal, then setting boundaries with your 10-year-old son or your 50-year-old boss really is a lot easier. I, I can tell you that much right now. Just coming and studying with us for two days to learn how to use emotions and information and how to set boundaries without disconnecting from people even or yourself. That, or yourself. Matter. Yeah, really. <laughs> that itself can change your life. I mean, I've seen people's lives change just with that little bit of information. Um, and then after that, what you begin to learn is also your body is a sensing device. And that Quite exquisite, actually. Very exquisite, very sophisticated. And um, so a lot of people have been taught to suppress and ignore the body and develop the mind as if the two are really separated. But, you know, that's our illusion that we go by in this culture. But horses use their body as an exquisite amplifier and tuner for all kinds of information coming through the environment, including energetic information, including emotional information, including body language, um, including the environment, all kinds of stuff. And so if you use your body as a tuner and receiver for information, your, your entire life changes. It's a little overstimulating sometimes when I first come to the city after I've been in the country. Oh, I don't doubt that. Um, and I, you know, have to really, I, I can pick up huge amounts of information in a, just sitting in a restaurant um, with the way people are sitting or the way they're moving or the way they're slipping in and out of um, coming into contact with my field and the, the tension in their body that they're holding what, that allows me to tell to a certain extent what, kind of, what state they're in. We also train people from around the world to do this work. And so we have what we call Epona-approved instructors um, all around the world on six continents now. And you have some in the Bay Area. So Epona is the name of your your training program? Yes. Epona is uh, named for the Celtic horse goddess who was associated with healing and transformation. But we have um, people who are counselors, who are trained mental and licensed mental health professionals. We also have people who are educators go through our program. We have some people who are riding instructors go through our program. And so you can really, like, you can log onto our website and find out who in your area, in your region, and I know there are several in the Bay Area 
who are Pona approved instructors, and they can do private sessions with you. You can just come out for an afternoon and spend three or four hours and get some of this information and really get an opportunity to experience this with a horse. So that, well, but not only that, it's going to change your life in how you experience other humans and how other humans experience you and perhaps other domestic animals like dogs and cats and so forth or even wild creatures. The real utility of it, though, is to be more deeply aware in a business setting, for example, or in a personal setting or... Yeah, it definitely translates to human relationships very readily. And what you do is you begin to be able to be sensitive to the other 90% of nonverbal communication. You know, it's really like the, the, the feeling edge. You know, if you're, if you're in the business world, you have that feeling edge. You have that other 90% of nonverbal communication that you can add to your list of sensing what needs to happen in a situation. So you can actually teach someone how to have that gut-level business sense that really great leaders have but they can't teach because they're not aware of how they learned it. With horses, we can break it down and teach people these skills. So we have, um, you know, CEOs come and study with us. We have counselors come and study with us to learn to how to relate to clients better. We ha- One of the most impressive things I've seen is a lady who came to a one-day workshop and learned some of the work with emotions and then also sensing boundaries and how to set boundaries and how to respect other people's boundaries before they even know that they need to set one. Um, and what she she did was she went back and she uses this with Vietnam War veterans who were suffering from intense post-traumatic stress disorder. And she said it's made a huge difference in their ability to feel safe in her office and to keep from getting overstimulated and to begin to work through the incredible pain that they're in. Yeah, and suddenly for the first time sudden, someone is actually acknowledging the emotional field that they've been immersed in for all these years. And particularly, you know, some of the Iraq vets that are coming back, I'm sure, are going to be very much in need of that. Yeah, she. oh, yeah, that's what I mean. She's using it with Iraqi war vets. Did I say v- Vietnam war vets? Yeah. Well, she has some Vietnam vets, but she's actually using it now with Iraqi vets. Okay. Absolutely. We're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Linda Kohanov. And Linda has written a book called The Tao of Equus. And how can people get a hold of you, Linda? They can contact us through our website, which is www.daoofequus.com. That's T-A-O-O-F-E-Q-U-U-S. Two U's. Great. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be right back, and so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, Linda Kohanov, and she has written a book called The Tao of Equus. Before the break, Linda, we were talking about the utility of your training programs to facilitate people coming to have direct experience and some familiarity with the psychosensual uh, or the sociosensual field. Also, in your book, you have written about the horse god, the centaur, Chiron, the wounded healer. So would you talk to us a bit about what you have come to know about Chiron and the transmission of the mythic dimensions of the horse? Well, Chiron is one of those myths um, that has been really resurrected in recent years. There's a lot of people who've been looking at Chiron's field of influence in astrological charts because there's actually a minor planet called Chiron. And um, there are a lot of psychotherapy centers that call themselves the Chiron Center for Body Psychotherapy because the myth of this particular centaur is, you know how most centaurs were, they were kind of a rowdy, drunken bunch in Greek mythology. Tell tell our listeners what a centaur is. A centaur is a half man, half horse, has the head and torso of a man and the body of a horse. And um, Chiron came along, and he was actually the ultimate Renaissance man, except that he happened to have four legs. But um, he was, you know, just an example of, I think, mythologically and archetypally, what happens when you become a centaur, when you really put your mind back onto your body and really let those two interact with each other. In our culture, we're taught to rein in our own bodies and our emotions and our instincts and intuition in much the same way that we dominate and punish horses. And so in some sense, the body is the horse that your mind rides around on. But if you really understand the body, what you understand is the body is an intelligent being in similar to a horse. And that when a rider, when the mind really learns how to 
form a partnership with the horse and activate the horse's intelligence rather than just using it as a machine, that, my goodness, your, your sense of empowerment and your awareness of the world expands exponentially. Well, you talk about uh, one of the sentences I've written down from your book is wisdom that gives rise to the form of the horse. And this is kind of what you're talking about, that it's this bodily wisdom that, that shows up. Yes. And actually, that, that refers to the, that particular phrase I use to refer to um, the horse ancestors concept that we were talking about earlier, which is the morphogenetic fields of horse, the collective wisdom of the horse, the wisdom that gives rise to the form of the horse. Um, so, and then there was another very striking story that you talked about called um, uh, the Tears of Aeneas. Can you tell us about the Tears of Aeneas? That has to be one of the strangest experiences I've ever had in my life. And what happened basically is that I was, um, I had some synchronistic experiences with horses, and particularly a formerly abused Arabian stallion named Midnight Merlin. And Arabian stallions, if you abuse them, they go crazy on you, and they get very dangerous. And I was rehabilitating this stallion who's actually an important member of my herd now and has had his own transformational story over the years. And it really became about misdirected male energy and how how masculine energy in our culture has been misused and abused in the same way that a lot of male stallions are abused. And so... Um, but it's a very intricate story, but I really use this example to go in deeply to it. But another thing that happened as I really engaged with this horse and how often horses have been taken into battle and how those collective memories were rising even with horses doing um, some conventional riding that used to be used for warring situations, they can tap those memories of well, war Well, you talk about the, the, the very form of dressage is um, uh, a reflection of the the education of rider and, and uh, animal uh, to go into war situations. Yes. So I had this stallion that any kind of conventional equestrian activity would make him go crazy. And I mean in the dangerous way you can imagine. And what I did was at a certain point, I mean I did lots of conventional training and therapeutic things to help him, but I also tapped into um, an intuitive sense of what was going on with him. And I expected that I would get information from his past in ways that he was abused by a former trainer. And what I got instead was a memory that we had tapped into of a horse going into battle in an ancient situation and being stabbed in the abdomen when he reared over a a soldier. It was a really powerful experience of, you know, and I'm like, well, I don't understand how I'm getting this this memory. It's like I'm tapping into a deeper memory source. Some people might think it would be the past life memory of this particular horse. Um, But what happened in this vision was not only was the horse stabbed and his rider was stabbed, but the um, one of the soldiers came in and actually used a large saw to hack off, not saw, sword to hack off the horse's head and drag the horse's head off into battle. And in the vision, I was like, why would this be done? This seems ridiculous. And they said to take the power of a great war horse. And when I came out of the vision, which was really quite horrific, I thought, is this symbolic of something? Is this an actual past life memory? I really don't know. Would anyone have even done that in the middle of a battle? Why would you go to that much trouble in a battle to do that? And then through a series of synchronicities, I came across the Aeneid, which was written by the Roman poet Virgil, and it was about the Trojan Wars. And at one point, the, um, the head of this, on the losing side of the Trojan Wars, a man named Aeneas, it's the story of Aeneas. And it's about him going home after losing in the Trojan Wars. And um, one of the things that he does is he, sto- he gets blown off course and stops at this island. And there's a um, temple there that's made as a war memorial to the Trojan Wars. And it was built on the site where they had dug up the head of a fierce war stallion. And so it was this bizarre synchronistic confirmation that maybe, yes, you might have taken the head of a stallion in battle. And that this was in an ancient Greek text that I had never read. So it was also making me realize that, my God, there are ways of 
tapping into larger sources of wisdom. Because how in the world would I have known this um, otherwise? And here was a literary confirmation that people really did do this sort of thing in battle. But the thing that was most significant about it was that this weary, embittered warrior who lost goes into this temple, which was a shrine of remembering the Trojan Wars and men on both sides who lived and died. And as he stood in there, he was moved to cry. And it was this moving to cry and grieve the injustices of war and the ways in which war, whether you win or lose, completely traumatizes your system. And um, it happens to men as much as women. And Aeneas wasn't really ready to move on to a new life until he found this war memorial and wheat here. And what I found was that with this horse who had been abused, what it, it was the act of accessing some kind of horrific memory and literally sitting with him and crying, where he, this scared stallion, rageful stallion, when I would cry with him um, through accessing this memory, he came over and stood next to me and licked and chewed and actually let a, a tear or two out. And I have seen this over and over and over with horses that they can't really cry like we do. They can't engage in that cathartic sobbing. They can shed a few tears in emotionally appropriate situations. They really can. I've seen it many times. I've known many people who have seen it. So in some sense, I had another horse, too, whose actual rehabilitation from an abusive situation involved being attracted to people who were on the verge of a good cry and standing with them as if he was resonating with their ability to cry and catching a ride out on their own tears and releasing, releasing the pain of life and of the injustices of life. And that that had a then clearing and healing effect that allowed several of these horses to move on with their lives. And I mean, this day now, Merlin is, um, he lives with his own mares. He's the father of two of my colts. Um, and his own colt just this last week is five years old. And he has a, his own Mustang mare, and we just helped them learn how to mate and live together. But these stallions had to learn how to deal with their incredible energy that often turns into rage and frustration in order to be with these mares. And so this whole theme has really been about working with masculine energy in a new way, masculine consciousness, in a way that becomes socialized, but not socialized in a way that's suppressive, but socialized in a way that's empowering for everybody. And particularly now, that's so valuable with many of the Iraq veterans returning and some of the stuff that uh, they're having to go through and what's even still going on over there. So, well, I'm afraid we're out of time, and I'm sorry about that, but I'd like to have you on the show again, if I may. Oh, I'd love to, anytime. Okay. Uh, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we have been speaking with my guest, Linda Kohanov. And she's written a book called The Tao of Equus, and it's E-Q-U-U-S. And how can people get a hold of you, Linda? They can log on to our website, which is the title of the book, www.daoofequus.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.